Man, that's good stuff. I'm sitting back there, I'm thinking to myself, I was doing this first service and I was doing it again. God, you are faithful. Your goodness is running after me. And there's been times in my life where that has been difficult to believe. In Romans chapter 8, Paul says that he who has been so gracious to give us his own son, will he not also give us all things? J.I. Packer to that point says that when we find ourselves on the other side of eternity, that those who are in Christ will realize that there has been nothing denied to them, nothing given to them that in any way will detract from their happiness in Christ. Man, and there can be times in life where that's difficult to believe. But we cling to that, we hold to that because we know that God did not even deny us his own son. Will he not also graciously give us all things? Let's pray to him. Heavenly Father, Lord, your goodness, yes, Lord, is running after us. And Lord, your goodness has been realized in the person of Jesus Christ. The God-man whom we gather today to worship and give thanks for. Lord, may you be honored by our worship. May you be glorified by it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Spanish River, have a seat. Man, it's, it's so good to see so many faces that I know. It can be easy because I can sit back stage and I start to get nervous and then I come out here and I see, oh, I see people I know. And I'm like, okay, all right, it's going to be all right. You know, a couple of you though, arms crossed, you're like, who is this joker? Well, allow me to introduce myself. My name is Brian Herring. I serve as one of the pastors here at Spanish River Church. I actually oversee community life here at Spanish River Church. And well, what is that? Well, that is our community life ministry, which is life groups, small groups, Bible studies. One of the things that I help oversee is helping people find their next step here at Spanish River Church. If you're new to Spanish River, I want you to know I want to be a resource for you. If you're looking to get engaged in a men's group or a women's group or in a life group, if you're looking to find out more about who we are and what we believe, I would love to be able to connect with you and help you find out what that looks like here at Spanish River Church. Today I have the honor and the privilege to be able to preach to you on this Palm Sunday. All right, thanks. What's up? Come on now. Can you believe it? It's Palm Sunday 2021. God is good. Here we are, almost to April. I'm excited for today. We are going to dive into a passage of Scripture that is, I, I hesitate to say this, but probably more well-known to people both inside the church and outside the church. And I was reading through a devotional this week and I was convicted because in this devotional, uh, it was talking about this particular passage that we're going to read. We're going to be in John chapter 12 today. And it can be so simple at times when we come across something that is overly familiar to think in our minds, maybe we do this subconsciously, but we'll basically say, look, I already know this. There's nothing new that I can learn from this. Or we'll kind of switch on autopilot and just kind of push through. How many of you when driving have all of a sudden snapped out of it and realized that you're sitting in your driveway and you, have no, you don't remember at all the drive to get there? 
Yeah? You people are all, I don't do that, but wow. You might want to pay attention. No, I get it. Right? On those, on those trips that we just know so well, whether we're going to and from work or maybe we're going to and from school. Perhaps we're going to and from Publix and our mind is racing and we're going and all of a sudden what happens? We snap out of it and we're sitting there in our driveway and we're like, that is terrifying. I don't remember that trip at all, but you're just so used to it, it happens. And we come across these, these accounts in the scripture that God has left for us and we think, I know this one. And we just kind of breeze through it. Well, this is the third Palm Sunday the Spanish River has given me an opportunity to preach. It's amazing that they <laughs> keep asking me to do this. But here I am, and I've struggled with that. I came into this like, man, I've already preached this twice. I mean, what, what else is there? He walks in, palm fronds, hey, Jesus is king. Which is true, and it's a good thing to be reminded of. But I'm here to tell you, I learned some new stuff this time. And I'm excited for what we get to dive into together. So if you have your Bible, open up to John chapter 12. This is the fourth of the accounts of the life of Jesus found in the New Testament. John the Apostle, the beloved Apostle, was a follower of Jesus. He wrote not only this gospel, but he also wrote three epistles, which are found, three letters that are found in the back of the New Testament, as well as the book of Revelation. But we are in his account of the life of Jesus, picking up in chapter 12. We're going to be reading verses 12 down through 19. So follow along with me, please. The word of the Lord is recorded by the Apostle John. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took uh, branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. And the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I want to I walk through this because as I, as I was praying and I was asking the Lord, okay, what am, I, what, am, what am I maybe missing in this that I've seen before? I just went through it verse by verse and I went through it real slow. I'm a history major. So I came at it from that perspective, and that's what I'm excited to walk through today. So we're going to go back and we're going to walk through this. So if you have your Bible, keep it open. Take some notes. I'm excited about what God has for us to, has for us to learn. This passage starts in verse 12 by John clearly telling us that there is a large crowd that is coming out to meet Jesus. Now large crowd is something to pick up on because of this. Jerusalem has a population at any given time throughout its history in this period uh, of about 50 to 120,000 people. Now, this is at Passover. So Jesus is, like many other Jews in the surrounding parts of Israel in the Middle East, are making a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to observe the Passover. Did you realize the Passover was just the other day? Do you guys know that? 
Yeah, Passover was just the other day. So here is Jesus going to Jerusalem along with many, many others. There was a Jewish historian, his name was Josephus. He wrote about the Jewish-Roman wars that would start in about 40 years from now at this point in history. And he said that at one of the um, Passover feasts that he went to in Jerusalem, the city had swelled to over 2.7 million people. So this is a large crowd. You're going from a city of, a, let's say, at a good point in history of about 100 to 120,000 people to almost 3 million. Okay, it's, it's basically like a college town on football, sun, uh, football Saturday, right? So a lot of my wife's family graduated from Penn State. And so I've seen a number of games up at State College, PA. Do you know that becomes the third largest city in the state of Pennsylvania on game day? Right? Similar to Gainesville, right? Except, except State College is much classier. But it's just, hey, if we can't laugh in church, where can we laugh? Come on now. All right? But that's what's going on in Jerusalem here. You have all of these people, all of this excitement, all of these surrounding Jews coming in from all over, swelling this city. And so we continue in verse 13. Uh, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they had heard, hey, this guy Jesus is showing up. And so this massive crowd accumulates. Now I read that and I think, okay, a lot of people show up. But there's a lot more to it than that. Look down, if you have your Bible open, to verse 17 and 18. Because this tells us why such a large crowd was there. In verse 17, it says, The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. This is the reason why the crowd went to meet him. It was that they had heard he had done this sign. This is a celebration of resurrection. This, this gathering of people to see Jesus is a celebration of the resurrection of the man Lazarus. Perhaps you're not fully aware of what happened with Lazarus. In John chapter 11, the, the passage that precedes where we're at right now is an account of Jesus literally, literally raising a human being from the dead. Yeah, 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 yeah. Four days in the tomb. At the beginning of chapter 11, we, we get word... In the text of this man, Lazarus, who was ill and dying. We don't know what he had. We don't know what he was suffering from. It could have been appendicitis. It could have been pneumonia. But he passes away. And Mary and Martha, his sisters, are deeply mourning. And it says that there are people in the house mourning with them. And Jesus shows up late. And they're like, man, if you had only been here, Jesus. If you had only been here, you could have healed him. We know you. We know your ministry. You give sight to the blind. You help the lame to walk. You heal the sick. You could have healed him. But it's too late now. And it says Jesus is overcome with emotion and grief when he sees Mary crying and he sees these other mourners there. And he says, no, no, no. This was by design. And I'm going to do something now so that you believe. And Jesus walks out and all these people are around and he says, hey, move, move the stone. Okay, I, think about this. Like in our modern context, think about 
being in a cemetery and somebody walking up to a plot and saying, dig it up. I'm going to show you something. And people, people push back. They're like, man, he's been dead for four days. It's not going to be pretty in this tomb. And Jesus says, no, no, no. It's okay. Open it up. And he declares, he declares, Lazarus, come out. And to the amazement of everybody standing there, here comes Lazarus wrapped up in his burial clothes. And Jesus says, hey, get him out of that. He's going to be hungry. Let's go have something to eat. That happened. We read through this stuff and we're like, yeah, that's pretty cool. A guy's dead for four days. Four days. And Jesus is like, come out. That blows my mind. And I'm reading it. There were people that stood there and saw this happen. And so immediately you can begin to understand, okay, people are pretty excited. That would be radical in today's day and age. It's radical then as well. And so all these people just start mobbing Jesus. It says that Jesus basically has to lay low for a little while. He heads out of town. He lays low in a bathroom. And it's, it's now Passover time. And Jesus has reemerged. And as he's coming towards Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, he stops and has dinner with Lazarus. And while he's there having dinner with Lazarus, word gets out. And people just start hounding that house and start hounding him and his followers. And it grows from there. Maybe you know him. Maybe you've seen his stuff. James Corden, he's one of the late night hosts. Uh, He does, I think, the Late Late Show. And uh, I see his stuff on YouTube from time to time. He does the really popular carpool karaoke. I see some of you okaying, so you've heard of him. Anyways, he did an interview with Paul McCartney uh, a number of years ago. And he went to Liverpool. He's British as well. And they were in Liverpool and they went to Paul's old house. Uh, And he's walking uh, James Corden through this house. And he's like, oh, my dad used to sit here. And this was where our piano was and where I first learned to kind of play instruments and write music. And it's hilarious because as they're interviewing him, James Corden says, look outside. And they put the camera out and you can start to see just people gathering all outside the house. Because word is starting to get out that Paul McCartney is in there. And people just start gathering and gathering. By the time they leave the house, there's this huge crowd there of people excited to see Paul McCartney. It's very similar to what's happening here, but even more so. Because, well, look, Paul's a phenomenal musician. He hasn't raised anybody from the dead. Okay? People are going nuts And they're sitting here and they're bearing witness. It says the people that saw this actually happen are running around and telling people, this guy raised somebody from the dead. This is it. This is the Messiah. This is the one that we have been promised. This is our liberator, our king, our savior. But where they fail in their understanding of this resurrection celebration is that they don't recognize the true mission of why he came, but what they do is they add their own expectations of what they think Jesus came to do. Look back at verse 13. Look look what happens. This is the part that many of us will know. So they took branches of palm trees, and they went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. 
So it's here that we see them begin to take out the palm branches. And palm branches carry major significance. This isn't just like, hey, you know, let's, it's like, let's fan him as a king. Or, you know, pretend like it's, we're in Egypt or something. It has nothing to do with that. For, the, for the, any Israelite in that day and age, palm fronds carried significance uh, for the nation of Israel. They were a nationalistic symbol. 200 years before this, the Maccabees had liberated the temple of Israel from invaders. And they used palm fronds as a symbol of nationalistic pride. So when they're waving these palm fronds, this is becoming a nationalistic parade. This is becoming a political movement. This is beginning to dig deep into the heart and souls of these people that believe their Messiah has finally arrived not to liberate them from sin, not to liberate them from death, not to liberate them from hell, but to liberate them from Rome. They cry out, Hosanna. This actually comes out of Psalm 118 and is a messianic call. And Hosanna is Arabic, actually, meaning save us now. So we get this picture of this crowd of people. Amen, brother. So we get this picture of this crowd screaming out, waving palm fronds, save us now. Deliver us from the hands of the oppressors. Bring your kingdom to Israel. Freedom. And it becomes a nationalistic movement. And so for Jesus, he's like, oh, no, 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 that's not why I have come. And in fulfilling prophecy, what he does is he lays out for them who he truly is. Look at how he responds. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey. The passage comes from Zechariah chapter 9. It's a messianic, prophetic word about the coming Messiah. And in that, it says that this Messiah will bring peace to the nations. And he will bring peace to the nations and set prisoners free by the blood of the covenant with Israel. Now they would have interpreted that as peace to the nations as again, peace after the war. After the fighting, after the liberation, after we have become our own nation yet again. They're attaching their own political motives to Jesus and his mission. But Jesus has no intention of liberating them from Rome. The peace that he speaks of and the peace for the nations that is found in the blood of Israel is in his sacrifice that brings peace of these nations, of these people, with a God who stands in judgment over them for their sin. And yet they mess it up. They tie Jesus and they plug him into a political movement. Man, I'm so glad we don't do that anymore. <laughs> Awkward silence. <laughs> For 2,000 years, as Christians and as a church, we have constantly distorted the mission and the purpose that Christ had. Look, the disciples themselves struggled with it. Look at verse... Look at verse 16. His disciples, it says, did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. 
In Acts chapter 1 verse 6, the disciples are saying goodbye to Jesus as he is about to be lifted back up into heaven after his resurrection. And you know what their one question to him is? In Acts chapter 1 verse 6, I'll just read it, I could paraphrase it, but it's right here. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, they're speaking to Jesus, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? This is after they've seen not only him raise some from somebody from the dead, but they've actually witnessed him raised from the dead. And their question right before he ascends back up into heaven is like, okay, we ready to do this? We going to kick him out? We, we finally going to have the free, is heaven finally coming to earth? And it's, it's the same thing that we continue to struggle with today. Understand that this isn't Jesus' fault. It's not his fault that disciples are failing to recognize this. He has over and over again throughout the Gospels told them and told us. that he, And he often spoke about them or with them about the nature of his work. And when we misunderstand our Lord, it's because of our sin, our ignorance, and our failure to understand his word. The story of the gospel is one that brings not heaven to earth. Is not one that looks to, to fulfill our needs. Not looks to liberate us from what we want. But no, instead looks to free us from the guilt and the bondage of sin. The curse of death. And the eternity of separation from God in hell. Years ago, we did a series on 1 Peter. And we followed a book uh, called Everyday Church. You guys remember that? It's okay. I, I just wrote the curriculum for it, so don't worry about it. Um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, I did write it, though. But in that, Steve Timmis, who wrote that book, used a story to walk through the gospel. And I've since heard it a number of times, but that was the first time I heard it. And he, he used a story of four main points to explain the working of the gospel. You have creation, you have fall, you have redemption and restoration. Creation is an understanding of how you and I were made to be. This is the world that we were made for. God created us out of an outflowing of his own love, his own goodness, and his own glory. And in God's perfection, how did he make us? But he made us with dignity and value in his image. I mean, that's, that's a great start to any story. And you and I, we were created as dependent beings on our creator. We were made to worship him, enjoy him, love him, and serve him. And we found our purpose, our identity, our security in him. How many of you had a lovey or a blankie or a teddy bear when you were a kid that you slept with all the time? Come on, come on, come on. If your hand's not raised, you're not telling the truth. All right? Yeah, you did. You remember as, maybe you don't remember it, but I do. I remember this little yellow ducky blankie that I had. And, uh, that, what, but what, why did we love those things as children? Because they brought us security, right? When it was dark and there was a storm outside, what did we do? But we clung to our little lovey. Under, that's how you were created with your heavenly father. A God who was always with you. Who you clung to, who you found safety and security and purpose and identity in. That's the creation part of the story, but the story continues into the fall. 
And the fall is the part of the story that talks about the fact that all of that has been lost through sin. Rather than living a life under God's authority, humanity in rebellion turned away from God in sinfulness. That defection plunged not just us, but all of the world into darkness and the chaos of sin. Creation itself and the godly order was shattered. And all of us are sinners, not by nature, but by choice, both. And understand this, there's two main consequences for our sin. One, sin has enslaved us. When we thought that we had separated ourselves from God and we were now free and independent, we were anything but. Instead of worshiping God, we began worshiping idols. The Bible talks about this. When we turn from God, we turn to other things. These things in which we find identity, meaning, happiness. Maybe it's work. Maybe it's in having the perfect family. Maybe it's in the house. Maybe whatever it is. But we have sold ourselves to something. And instead of that serving us, we have become a slave to it. They enslave us demanding our time. They demand our energy, our loyalty, and our money. The second consequence sin brings is condemnation. We stand condemned before a judge of heaven and earth. And the very wages of our sin is death, Paul tells us in Romans. So we have how the story starts. It's a wonderful beginning. Creation, but the fall has separated us from this perfect God, bringing condemnation and slavery in sin upon us. But it doesn't stop there because every story needs a hero. And the hero of our story is the person of Jesus Christ. Fully man. One who could go and carry our sin because he's lived the same life you and I have. In Hebrews chapter 4, what does the author tell us? But he has suffered in every way you and I have, yet without sin. But not only was he fully man so that he could... He could endure temptation. He was also fully God. The God-man, the second person of the Trinity, who was able to perfectly meet the standard that God had set forth. His own perfection. You see, on the cross, Jesus took our place, dying for our sin. He received the condemnation. He received the death that we deserve so that when we put our trust in Him, we can receive the blessing and life He deserves. Colossians chapter 5 verse 21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. And to those who put their faith and trust in him, no different than when you go to a doctor and they give you a diagnosis and you believe their diagnosis and you enter into treatment with that doctor. In faith we come to Christ and we admit our diagnosis of sin. We admit our separation from him. And in faith, we open up and say, Lord, you are the only one who can save me and forgive me and truly free me. And then what is the restoration? What is the happy end of that story? But Revelation 21, where there will be no more death, where God will dwell with us and every tear will be wiped away. That is the good news of the gospel. That is something that there are, our world, that there are probably you in this room that need to hear and come to grips with. But what do we do? We fall into the same trap that they did. We fall into the same trap. Look at our culture around us. They practice a gospel message. Even if, they, even if they will tell you that they don't believe in God and they don't believe in Jesus, they practice a gospel message because it's written on every person's heart. 
People will tell you, man, children are innocent. They're born good. I was like that. I'm not saying this, but I'm talking figuratively. But what do we say? We live in a culture of victimhood, right? The perfect you has been distorted and perverted by your upbringing or by your parents, by society. The housing crisis, you know what? It hurt you. It stole your money, put you into foreclosure. That, that ruins you. Your spouse, your marriage, your kids. There's always something else that we look to when we say, that's the fall. Where I was has been distorted and, and perverted and destroyed. And so what do we do? But we have to look for a savior. And so what does the culture do? What do they do? Happiness. Security. Purpose is found in what? In education, in a job, in finances, in the perfect relationship, in the perfect kids. And we strive for that. And they tell you to strive for that. I've gotten into yoga. Don't laugh. It's awesome, actually. Um, I have an Apple Watch, and they started giving away free um, Apple Fitness, if you had an Apple Watch, to try it out. And so I'm doing yoga, and I actually really dig it. Thanks, bro. Um, and, uh, but one of the things they always talk about is finding your inner self, finding your true self. I like yoga. I'm not as much into the New Age stuff. I usually use that as an opportunity to pray. But I'm fascinated by the fact that what are they searching for? But they're searching for the created order that was lost in the fall. They're looking for it in what? In that inner child, in that true you that was lost. And then ultimately, where does our culture tell us that true restoration lies? But in comfort, in pleasure, in the easy life. Sitting on a mountaintop, drinking a glass of wine, retired. That's, that's the pinnacle. That's the best they have to offer. I'm not lying. It doesn't sound bad. But it pales in comparison to why Christ really came. And while we may not do it as blatantly as the culture around us, we begin to feed into this gospel story our own comforts, our own salvations and we say Jesus can you this is where true this is where true hope will come from this is where the peace that I truly need will come from can you just fit into this and Jesus reminds me like he reminds them there Brian I didn't come to bring you heaven on earth I came to free you from sin and death and hell this is a celebration of redemption. And what it points to is prophetically a week later where there will be a greater resurrection. This is a story that points to resurrection. And what it does is it forecasts and it predicts and prophesies a greater resurrection that will take place in one week from today. A resurrection that unlike Lazarus, we will be continuing to celebrate for all eternity. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for your word. 
Lord, forgive me for how often I can breeze through passages of Scripture and think, eh, I know this. And Lord, forgive me for the ways that I interject into my own story, my own story into what you have laid out for me. Lord, may we be a people who understand why you came and the reason you came. Lord, the freedom, the forgiveness, the hope, the peace of sin that is conquered, of death that is destroyed, of hell that is no more. Lord, continue to build our trust in you. Convict us of our sins. Enlighten us to the goodness of your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.